you are not realizing this world is broken. Things are not the way God intended them to be, and that's true all the way down to each of us, in particular in our lives. And yet, in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a world that is not the way it is supposed to be, God is still loving us. God is still loving us. I'm going to read to you one verse of Scripture to start out. I have several others that I'll use throughout the sermon, but Mark chapter 15 And if you don't know or recognize Mark chapter 15, this is smack dab in the middle of the crucifixion. Jesus has been tried, he's been buffeted, he's been beaten, he's been scourged, he's been taken to the cross, he's been put upon that cross. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, the scripture tells us, they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And I want to preach to you this morning this thought. He did not excuse himself. He did not excuse himself. I don't know if you recognize this little phrase, but we use it a lot of times when there's something we don't want to do or someplace we don't want to be, some activity we don't want to participate in, I will have to excuse myself. And we come up with all kinds of crafty ways to do so. I have have other plans. How many has ever used that one before? Anybody ever use that? I have other plans. Um, Now, the the sneaky little thing about it is, is before you got that invitation, I'm not sure whether you had those other plans or not. But suddenly plans materialize. Things of a higher priority suddenly go up the list of priorities because you want to be excused. You don't want to be involved. You don't want to be present. And so this is the concept that, I am, that I'm drawing your attention to within my title, that God did not excuse himself. We already know it's a very famous passage in which Jesus in the garden praying sweating great droplets of blood, in his humanity calls out to his divinity, Father, let this cup pass from me. May I be excused. I don't want to go through what I'm going to have to go through. I don't want to experience what I'm going to experience. I don't want to feel what I'm going to feel. So it's all the more important to understand and remember this fact that in his humanity alone, Jesus wanted to be excused. But Mark chapter 15 and verse 23 is a verse that I doubt very many of us have dwelt upon. I doubt we've preached an entire sermon from it. I doubt we've paid real close attention to it. But in fact, history seems to tell us that at these crucifixions, there was women who would go along and they would offer to the condemned a mixture of wine with myrrh that could numb the pain, that could take away some of the suffering 
They were going to die. That was not a question. But it would make it feel at least a little bit better. We would, in modern medicine days, we would call this palliative care. This is what we do in obviously more sophisticated manner, but what we do in hospice care. When finally death is at our doorstep, there is no further action that can be taken, and we allow the person to at least live those last few moments of, of dying in a relative comfort. Now, I already have established for you that in the garden, Jesus prayed and said, please excuse me. Please find another way. Please do not cause me to experience this suffering. As God, he knew all along what was coming. But in some weird sort of way that my words are going to butcher, God was experiencing something new. God had always been God, and as spirit, he was everywhere. But God had never been a human. The scriptures tell us that he was tempted in all points like we are, with only one distinction, he did not sin. In small groups we've been studying and will be this coming week, about this revelation of the Son, God born a human. And it's hard for us to grapple with, and this is where my words, they, they, they do not serve me well. I'm not quite sure how to accurately put it, but if I can say it this way, which I'm telling you right now is, is somewhat wrong, God was in a new place. God was looking at something that he hadn't looked at before. Because God is a being that not only lives forever, God is a being who has always been. So the concept of death, again, my words are probably not sufficient, but the concept of death in some ways was purely theoretical for God. He had never experienced death, and in his spirit state, he never could. But now he's born a human. He's taken upon himself. He who is above all has descended. And he who is eternal has taken on time. And he who has no limits becomes limited. And now he's staring at it. Just like you and I stare at it. And we may stare at it differently from the time of our childhood into our teen years, into our young adulthood, into middle age, into older, and then into aged. But all of us instinctually know, just in varying degrees, that an end is coming, that death will be upon us, that time will run out. The longer you live, the more you realize, coupled with this, comes suffering, loss, hurt, pain, and perhaps even physical pain. I don't really fear death as much as I fear which way am I going to die. Is something going to take my eyesight? That's always been a fear of mine. Because my eyes are so fragile, I cannot afford 
to have something big time bad happen to them. I literally, in one of the small groups this past couple of weeks, I dropped my glasses. Thankfully, Matt went and found them for me because I could not find them. My wife knows that I will throw myself into the ocean and swim with less fear than I have when I can't find my glasses. Because when I lose my glasses, the next fear is I'm going to step upon them. And then I will really have lost them. I go nowhere without a second pair of glasses in a bag. We have fears about our limitations. We have fears about death. But one of the things I fear is not death, but rather that I would lose my mind. I, a long time ago, decided that I was not somebody who was going to live a lot in my body. I mean, I live in it, but I'm not the athlete. My body's going to break down long before, hopefully, my mind does. And so I am a man of the mind, if you will. I live in my mind. That is where I make my living. It's in my mind, my ability to think, my ability to articulate what I think. God, don't let me lose my mind. God, in that garden, the Gospels preserve for us a recognition on the part of the humanity, the human expression of God, a desire to be excused. Yet somehow he made a choice. He says, yet not my will, thy will be done. And this little verse that I have read to you in Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. I believe is an expression of this choice on the part of the man named Jesus. God with us. Gone was the prayer of the garden. May I be excused. And settled in was a commitment. Perhaps it's an outgrowth of uh, an early Christian hymn that described Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. We often point to this as Paul did Speaking of the attitude that Christ had, let the mind or the attitude of Christ be in you also. That though he was God, he did not retain his divinity or the rights and the privileges of it that he could have excused himself. But instead he humbled, he became fully human. And he went to the ultimate human reality, the death of a cross. In case you think he didn't really feel this humanly, 
Mark chapter 15, a little bit, bit later than what we read, verse 33 tells us at noon darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. You can see some similarity there of the Eloi, Eloi. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. See, once again, trying to ameliorate the pain and the suffering, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, this person who brought it. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry, perhaps that cry that is captured in the Gospel of John, it is finished, and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here he's quoting from Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? You see the cross that we put in various places cannot capture, none of us understand the severity of the suffering upon this cross. The beating he had received and the long night of no sleep and the buffeting of his face and the, the crown of thorns upon his head and the flaying of his back and, and the crucifixion itself. But please, you have to understand that normally people who are crucified, they would take days to die. You can go and read in the gospel accounts that the Jews are concerned about exactly this by sending messengers to Pontius Pilate to send orders to the soldiers to break the legs of the prisoners so that they will die quicker than normal. But by the time they get to Jesus, he's already uttered these words. He's already breathed his last breath. He's already dead. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, the writer of Hebrews tells us that because of the joy awaiting him, the joy, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Jesus considered the suffering of death not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against me and against you. Caring nothing for the suffering, disregarding it, unafraid of it, 
because he would not excuse himself from the cost of saving me. This was not a foregone conclusion. The garden tells me it was not because he asked to be excused, but then humbled himself, did not retain his divine prerogatives, but instead died to his will. It took on his divine will. He wouldn't excuse himself. He wouldn't let himself off the hook. He would not find a loophole. He would not find a way to avoid the suffering. Because of the joy of saving me. And please understand, each of you need to hear this this morning in that same words. Because of the joy of saving me. Each of you needs to say this under your breath or out loud. Because of the joy of saving me. He did not excuse his humanity from suffering the wages of my sins. And he executed himself for me. Many struggle when I use this language. But for what other reason did Jesus die? He did not die from the effects of the cross. They would not have sent those to break his legs in order to do so. In fact, when you study the scriptures, you can find other examples where the holy and divine Shekinah presence of God comes into existence and comes into contact with human beings who are sinful. And in every case, what happens? The power and the might, and the righteousness and the holiness of that God strikes forth and that human dies. Literally on that cross, my God refused to excuse himself. Because somewhere between the garden and his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scriptures tell us that Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world. He took all of my sin. He took all of your sin. But he took even more than that. He took the brokenness of the entire world. He took the brokenness of creation. He took the brokenness of humanity. He took the results of that brokenness. He took it into his body. But the moment that the God-man, God become a human, took into his body my sin and your sin, because he was God, there was only one response, and that was to pay the wage of the sin. 
to exact the cost, to exact the price. And that price was death. And so God exacted of himself death. Yes, he rose from the dead. But first you and I have to acknowledge that he did not excuse himself from the price of my salvation, his death. All of that suffering he took upon himself. And the scripture tells us that somehow between the prayer in the garden and Golgotha, he had humbled himself and brought himself into obedience to his own will, the death of the cross. And the entire gospel is powered by that choice. Everything he ever asks us to do, we're asked to compare to that choice. In fact, the writer of Hebrews asked that exact question. Have you suffered unto death? Have you experienced suffering to the extent of your Savior? Have you been maligned? Have you been hurt? Have you been abused? Have you, been, have you experienced anything close to the entire sin of the entire world for all of time? violating you and then your own being turning upon your human existence and exacting the penalty for all of those sins that you did not even commit but because you took them willingly because you humbled yourself to become the Savior. Death struck you. I remind every single person here that while we attach and connect death with sin, death did not come from sin. Death was necessitated by sin. Death came from God. And when it came time for him to save me, he did not excuse himself from my penalty. I don't understand this God. I don't always like this God. I certainly don't like the things he asks me to do. I don't like the sacrifices and the suffering that seem to be what he wants. But ladies and gentlemen, this morning, I call you back to the core. I call you back to the place that you have a decision to make. Can you look at this God who in his humanity 
Though he did not want to suffer, though he wanted to be excused, he refused to excuse himself for me. I can't walk away from that God. I don't know how to go anywhere but towards him. I don't know how to do anything except be obedient unto him. I don't know how to respond to that without saying, God, no matter how bad life has been and no matter how much suffering I've experienced, I am yours to do with what you want and how you will. I don't know how to walk away from a God who loves me that much. I don't know how to walk away from a God who sacrificed himself and demonstrated that love for me. I don't know how to walk away from that God. I don't know how to do anything but love that God. For greater love hath no man than when a man lays down his life for his friends. This is what he said to us. This is what he told us. And I don't know how to do anything except love him back. I don't know how to do anything except respond back to him. I don't know how to do anything except put my entire life in his hands. Because he loved me so much. Because he looked so forward to reconciling me to him. That he just, despite wanting to be excused, he considered the suffering of death not important enough to be of concern. Not when compared to me. He laid aside the suffering and said, doesn't matter. He disregarded it. He was unafraid of it. He would not excuse himself. And so this morning, I ask you a simple question. What are you willing to excuse yourself? anything? Is there a price at which point you say, God, your sacrifice at Calvary is less than this? And I believe the reason that Jesus instructed his disciples the few nights before to take bread and to take of the cup. And as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, echoing what is said in Luke, as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. Why would we declare his death? Why would we not fixate on his resurrection?
because his death, not his resurrection, is what calls us to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him. His death. Without resurrection, there is no hope of the gospel. But without death, there is no resurrection. Without resurrection, a man died on a cross. Like thousands and hundreds of thousands died in the ancient world. But you see, your relationship with Jesus cannot start in the resurrection. It has to start in his death. You cannot follow him without denying self. And when you don't follow him, it will be because you have decided not to deny self. I cannot compel you today, but I can only call to you to consider what he did all the way to the point that when they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, he refused it because he was willing to suffer. He was not willing to excuse himself for me. I know that the flow of this is a little weird. In most communion services, I want you to rejoice. And maybe we will in a moment. But right now, we need a time in this altar. Right now, you need a time for you and God to decide what this message this morning means for you. I don't know what it means. I only know he gave it to me. I only know what it means for me. No matter what he asks of me, I cannot excuse myself. I must follow him. Would you come? If you don't come, would you at least find your place within that pew? And would you hear the call of our master as he reaches out for you and says, I love you enough that I wouldn't even deaden the pain because of how much I loved you. Jesus, I worship you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Done this once before, but at whatever point, that you feel that you are ready.
Just simply come to the front, take of the bread, take of the cup, and declare his death. I'm not rushing you. In fact, I'm telling you not to rush. You need to pray until that point where you and Jesus feel that release. And go and take the bread and you take the cup.